This is Other Voices. We're listening to vary views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Jessica Serfilippi. She grew up in Bethlehem and has been interested in writing and history, particularly the American Revolution, since she was eight years old. She loves her job guiding people through the state-run Schuyler Mansion in Albany and researching its history. She started her groundbreaking and myth-busting research on Alexander Hamilton the way she thinks any historian should, with an open mind. Primary sources led her to the conclusion that Hamilton was a slave owner. When her paper was published, a firestorm followed. I found out about Jessica because this upcoming Thursday, the Bethlehem Historical Association is going to host a talk with her, 7 o'clock at the Reformed Church in Del Mar, on Alexander Hamilton's hidden history with slavery. So I looked up a paper that Jessica wrote. It's posted on the state website because she works at the Schuyler Mansion. Absolutely fascinating. Um, original research on original source documents. And what I didn't know until after I invited her to talk was she's already created a nationwide stir with her research. So, welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me today. I'd like to start just by asking, how is it that you got interested in setting the record straight on Alexander Hamilton and slavery? What, what was the spark that, that led you on this journey? Sure. So it actually was just a larger project I was working on. Here at Schuyler Mansion, we've been, well, you know, before I started working here, um, Everyone's been working about on unresearching slavery, um, specifically the people Philip and Catherine Schuyler enslaved. And when I began here in 2017, I joined in that research. But that is a huge overarching project. And while we were working on that, I began to question, well, what about Philip and Catherine Schuyler's children? So... I was doing small research projects on them. I started with one of their sons and then realized, hey, I skipped their oldest three daughters. I should go back and take a look at one of them. One of my former coworkers, Danielle Funicello, had already done a bit of research about Hamilton and slavery on our blog. And she left off with the question of, did he enslave people? She found um, some evidence that seemed to say he did, but she couldn't conclude at the time whether he did or didn't. So I thought, oh, I'll write part three to this blog post, um, and that'll be that. So I was just working on this kind of series I already had started. Um, I wasn't particularly looking, you know, to research Hamilton in particular. It just seemed natural to me to finish what Danielle had started, and Soon I realized that I had something much larger than a blog post, and while I didn't know 
what we would do with it. I wanted to keep going with it. Uh, it took about two years to research and write all of that. And uh, then we were finally able to publish it as a PDF, free and accessible to the public, which I was really happy about. Well, I'm just amazed um, at your tenacity. You were... I- I thought you must have kind of had a mission to start with because of how you ended up with such very, very strong statements. But here you were finishing a, a co-worker's project and just kept turning up more and more. At what point did you realize uh, that you had something that really would burst or break a lot of the myths as you've describe them about Hamilton. How, in this two-year journey, how, how far along were you when you had a kind of, did you have an aha moment? Um, I don't remember at what point, uh, you know, how many months in it was, but when I was able to see in his cash book, in his own handwriting, that he purchased uh, a woman and her child that was when i said you know this is definitive this definitely happened and i wondered you know why haven't other people looked at this and it turns out they had but weren't drawing the same conclusions i did so i kept going from there and the evidence just kept building up and i went into it the way i think any historian should which was with an open mind, not looking one way or the other to find something, just seeing where the primary sources led me. And I could not, you know, ignore where they were leading me. And once I saw that, I just kept going until I, you know, I don't know if I found everything, but it was everything I could find at the time. Yeah, it's fascinating. So tell us about these primary sources. How did you access them? Does the Schuyler Mansion have like these cash books that you reference throughout? Or several times I see it said Library of Congress. Was it online research? Just kind of describe for us a typical research day for you. <laughs> what what did that involve? <laughs> So with that project, I was really, really fortunate that Library of Congress had digitized all of the Hamilton papers they own. And I will say there are other Hamilton papers out there owned by different um, historical societies or even colleges, but they seem to hold the bulk of them. And that is where the cash books are. So, um, you know, I could sit at my desk here in Albany and read papers that are located in D.C. And Um, I think, you know, I'm very lucky to live in the digital age. Um, So that was really how I did most of the research was online through Library of Congress. I also used Founders Online, which is run by the National Archives and is uh, transcribed versions of letters between different founders. And there are some letters from Philip Schuyler on there. There are a lot from Hamilton. So I used those as well. I did look at the archives we have here in Albany. I did as much you know, research as I could online um, to see if anything else would come up. I also canvassed biographies to see what they cited and to then go find any primary sources in there and see what I found. 
That's really interesting because you start your paper by talking about some of those original biographies and it was all new to me. Um, the first one was written by his son and um, John Church Hamilton, who said unequivocally his father never owned a slave. And then you jump to his grandson, Alan McLean Hamilton, who said that that was untrue. <laughs> so right from the start, we have a sense that uh, history is interpretive. And what seems to me so remarkable about your work is, well, you interpret, it's only after you've laid out the bits and pieces, sort of Sherlock Holmes style of evidence that you found. Um, if you could just talk about, did you feel, um, I don't know if threatened would be the right word, but, you know, you're taking on some pretty big name writers, Ron Chernow's, you know, 2004 biography was thought to be definitive. And here you found something that ran opposite to his assertion. Um, how did you did you have that in mind as you were researching? Um, as I was researching, once I found that what I was finding differed from what he wrote and what other biographers have written, I didn't really think too much about what the reaction would be because I was just so entrenched in the research. And what really guided me through was just finding this out, knowing the enslaved people and seeing that that had been untold in so many of these biographies. I just wanted to tell you know anyone who read it that the Hamiltons did indeed enslave people because that way the people they enslaved could take their place in history and be remembered. And that was really what kind of uh, was the most important aspect of it to me once I did find the enslaved people. So it wasn't really until it was published and it got attention that I realized um, kind of what came with taking on bigger names like that. And how did you react to that once you got that kind of publicity? Um, you know, I always tell people I was a little bit naive. I didn't expect the reaction that came. I really just thought this would maybe make its rounds in the local history world. And that is how it started out. Um, but when, you know, the New York Times called for an interview, I was very excited. Um, and it was only after that I you know, realize what comes with a lot of attention to research. And I feel really fortunate that everyone here where I work and so many amazing historians that I met um, on Twitter really helped me navigate suddenly having all this attention put on me and really, uh, you know, just help me realize, you know, to ignore what people might be saying, um, if it's rude and to just stick with my research and, um, you know, try my best to block out everything else. Isn't that nice to know there's kind of an online community of historians <laughs> that, that you can yeah. um, get support from. So you mentioned yeah. that, um, the 
the thing that stood out for you was having, as you said, the people who were enslaved become part of history and remembered. So is that something that you're going to pursue now? And it must be even more difficult than the work you just did, because from your own writing here, I can see they're just tiny, tiny, tiny bits and pieces. You know, there's a reference in the letter to someone named Dick, and that's the first time that you were able to find out that there had been an enslaved person. I guess he died of yellow fever. Um, but yeah. how how are you trying to piece together those stories, and how are you going about it? Well, with Hamilton, I really exhausted everything I could find. And, you know, my hope is always that someone in the future will be able to build upon what I've written, because maybe sources that aren't available to me will be available to them. Um, so I always hold on to hope that, you know, down the line, I can add on or someone else can add on. But as of right now, I think I found everything there was to find. Um, I, I'd love for someone to prove me wrong and add more stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm mainly focused again on researching the people Philip and Catherine enslaved and putting together pieces of their lives. And we've been doing that here for a while and it's been one of our major focuses, especially um, with, you know, COVID being shut down for a bit. We really we're able to research even more than we normally could have. So tell us what a typical day is like for you at the mansion. Are you leading tours as well as doing research or how, how do your duties configure themselves? Sure. sure. So it, it depends on the season. So right now we're in what we call the off season, which is when we don't do regular tours. So right now my day looks uh, a lot like researching, um, but also working on internal projects, um, running the social media, uh, preparing for presentations like I have next week, um, writing new ones, working on blog posts, and kind of getting ready for the season, which begins in just about a month. We will open on uh, May 18th, which is uh, a Wednesday. That'll be our first day of the 2022 season. So during a tour day, I'm giving tours pretty much all day. There might be time in the morning or in between for research if there's something I was really working on. But this is a time of year where we really try to get projects done or to get most of them done so that during the season, it's a bit easier to focus on uh, what really needs to happen between the tours. And when you're giving tours, do you get ideas from responses on your research? Um, does that is there like an interplay there? Especially, I would think with a musical Hamilton being so popular, uh -huh. has there been a lot of visiting and discussion during the tours? You know, having to do with that. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I love, we love that so many people come here now because of the Hamilton musical. We've seen a huge spike in attendance. It grew even more when Hamilton was at Proctor's. Um, and, you know, even with COVID, we weren't sure what would happen when we reopened in July of 2020. But 
We were getting a lot of people because now Hamilton's on Disney Plus and even more people can see it and they want to come here. So we get a lot of really curious people that do bring questions and those questions do give me ideas for research because, you know, when someone has a question, when the public comes to you with a question, that's really what we're here for is to try to figure out the answer and share that whether you know, I'm able to in the moment on tour if I already know the answer. Or sometimes I'll say to people, you know, I don't know, but you've given me something to research now. Oh, that's great that there is that kind of interplay. So are are they aware, some of these visitors, of your own research? Or do you fill them in? Or is it upsetting for them after, you know, Hamilton's portrayed as such an abolitionist hero? And I know that... um, Lin-Manuel Miranda says he was inspired to write the musical because of Ron Chernow's book. And I just wonder, like, how that plays out during the tours. Yeah, so we have a few different tours. So on the general tour, which is the tour we're giving, um, you know, pretty much every day, and it's the only tour we've been able to hold with COVID, we're talking mostly about the Skylers and, you know, definitely if I know someone's interested in Hamilton, I bring that in more for them. I encourage questions, but it's not something that necessarily comes up on all of our tours. I'm talking usually about the people, the Skylers enslaved. And then we do get people who ask about the children and, you know, ask about um, Eliza and Alexander Hamilton. And then I'm able to draw my research and give them some answers. And I have to say that everyone has really been accepting of what I've told them. They'll be like, um, you know, surprised sometimes because you're right, that wasn't what was in the musical or the book. Um, if they read Chair Now, but when I kind of tell them the process and how I know what I know, then they want to learn more. And I usually tell them where they can read the primary sources for themselves if they're interested. If they're interested in my paper, I tell them how they can access that. But I have to say more often than telling people about that research, I find myself telling them about our blog because that's where all our research on the Skylers, um, including you know the lives of the family, lives of the people they enslaved, restoration. We cover so many topics on there that, um, you know, just off the top of my head, I am usually referring people to that way more often. That makes sense. I, I would just like to hear about you and your evolution into being an historian. How, just could you back up to the beginning of your life? Where, where did you grow up? <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up uh, in Bethlehem and... I've been interested in history and writing since I was about eight years old. Um, I love reading, writing. I got really interested in the American Revolutionary period around that time, and I just stuck with all of it. Um, I went to St. Rose and studied English in undergrad, and I have my MFA in creative writing from St. Rose as well. And during my master's program was when uh, the Hamilton musical came out and it made me think back to how much I liked history and like that aspect of history. And 
kind of show me how writing and history are so intertwined that I began seeking out internships. And I interned at the Albany County Hall of Records and then at Tenbrook Mansion. And I called Schuyler Mansion after that and asked for an internship. And they said that they didn't have any, but they had a job opening. <laughs> so um, I applied for that and I was really excited when they hired me. Um, I'm going into my fifth year of working here now, and I've found that coming from a different background, I thought would make things harder for me. But because of my interest in the time period, the fact that I have read about it on my own and the fact that I studied in the humanities, even if not in history directly, I've been able to uh, work pretty well with everyone and use all the skills I learned in school, like researching, editing, writing, and just apply them to this field. So, you know, sometimes we'll get students on tour who say they like history, but don't know if they're going to study it. And I always say, well, I didn't. And, you know, I think it's a good example of how you study one thing and you might end up somewhere else. Um, and I'm very happy with where I've ended up. And I think you haven't ended yet. <laughs> Do you know where <laughs> what you'll be doing? Do you have future plans? Do you have ideas where you'll go from here or even within your job at currently at the mansion? Um, yeah, so I'm going to, you know, keep, uh, you know, I'd like to keep working here for a while. Um, I was actually just made full-time staff here, so I'm very excited about that, very grateful for that and um, you know we're working on some internal projects at the moment I would like to continue my research on the enslaved people here on the women of Schuyler Mansion we're even studying a bit more into the 19th century about some of the descendants and their um, work later on so we're um, developing talks around that and in my life outside of here, I am a writer. Um, I did go to school for that for a reason. I am uh, working on young adult fiction. Oh, so you were talking about how weaving together history with writing is such a natural thing to do. What What is your um, young adult fiction about? Is there anything history-based or totally separate? <laughs> um, so I do want to write historical fiction. I have ideas, but right now I'm working on contemporary stories. And, um, you know, while I think history will always play a role and I, you know, trust and I say I've got some ideas there. Um, I right now am focused on reading a few contemporary things and I'm still in the early stages, uh, you know, it's, uh, a career as a writer, um, but I'm, you know, hopeful that I advance in that soon as well. Well, young adult fiction is such a great field. I, I think as a grown-up, some of my favorite books are in that that age group. I, I did a podcast recently with uh, a librarian at Burn Knox Westerlo who was on the National Committee through the Library Association to choose the best young adult um, book, new book for the year. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I read through some of the ones that, you know, she was talking about and considering, and they're just, I don't, 
I don't know what it is about writing for that age group. Maybe you can tell me because you're doing it. Um, is it because children are turning into adults and they're just forming who they're going to be? But there are just so many important books um, that are geared for that age group. Just why did you why did you focus on that for your first writing efforts? Sure. So I've always, uh, that's always been the age group I was interested in writing for. And I wondered as I got older if that would change. And it really hasn't. Um, I think, you know, the idea of coming of age is something we can all relate to. Um, and maybe that's why young adult is so popular because we have those memories. And I think, you know, we're all always coming of age in different senses as we grow older. So that change, that upheaval that we might see in the lives of, um, you know, the characters in adult novels, I think is relatable for a number of reasons. And I have to say it's a very innovative field. Um, I see a lot of work being done there that um, just is really important. And I think a lot of teenagers um, can relate to and maybe be helped by as well. Um, you know, that's part of what interested me is just the idea of writing, you know, like, oh, what book, you know, do I wish had been around or what story do I wish I had seen when I was that age and working on that. Um, yeah, I think there's a number of reasons. But I'd say I love young adult fiction and, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, it's what they mainly read as well. <laughs> I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. So can you share no. with us or do you like to keep it under wraps? What can you share with us what what your book is about that you're working on that currently? Um, I'll just give a little bit of a teaser, I guess. Um, so I'm working on um, a contemporary and adult novel about um, a girl who's really inspired by Emily Dickinson's poetry. Um and I don't want to say too much more about it, but I will say I read all of Emily Dickinson's poetry uh, to write this. So, um, you know, I really hope that it can be published someday and I can share it with everyone, um, you know, and I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm also an Emily Dickinson reader. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you, have you been to her house in Amherst? I have, yeah. I was there a few years ago, and I really want to go back. Yeah, so somebody that has um, a career explaining a house to people, I would think you would be particularly sensitive to visiting these kinds of sites, you know? Oh, absolutely. I love going, especially to house museums. Um, on any vacation I go on, I have to go to at least one. <laughs> Do you have a favorite among the ones you visited? Um, one that, that's hard. <laughs> and one that particularly spoke to you or meant a lot to you? Or? Um, you know, aside from Skylar Mansion, because I'm not exaggerating when I say I really, really want to work here. Um, aside from here, I think the my favorite site the Emily Dickinson one was definitely very meaningful to me as a writer. Um, I can't really think of a, another one that held that same kind of meaning. I guess when I can go somewhere and see 
um, you know, spaces or objects that, you know, belong to someone who I know a lot about or admire that means a lot to me. So uh, the Emily Dickinson one was really special for that reason. I have to say when I was still in grad school, I also was able to visit the Yorktown Battlefield, which isn't a historic house, but I had wanted to go there since I was a kid, um, since it is where the last major battle, the Revolutionary War, took place. So it was meaningful to visit that site. Yeah, you do get a feeling when you're at a site, and it's hard to describe what it is that comes over you. Samuel Johnson wrote about that feeling when he was touring with Boswell, you know, this just sense that comes over you. Well, so you say you really, really want to work here, and there you are working exactly where you want to be. Tell, tell us what it is about that house or some of the features that, you know, not just that you use as a tour guide, but that, as I understand it, the house was an orphanage for a while, right? And it, it probably had to be brought back to... to um, its original form is that right and there must be many original features i would think but i'm guessing here you tell us what what that house is like and why it means so much sure so um the house itself actually is really as the schuylers left it and we're very fortunate as a house museum because what ended up happening was the Schuyler children sold the home after their parents died. Um, a few merchants lived here. A family lived here. Miller Fillmore got married here, which is one of our weirder facts. Um, and then, yeah, um, he was a big Hamilton fan. I'm not exaggerating. That was a big draw to him. He married the, married the widow who lived here in the same room Eliza married Hamilton in. Oh, my goodness. Um, what an extraordinary our- fact. So little is known about him yeah (laughs) okay um and after that um the the house was sold to a catholic orphanage and they were very aware of its history so when they needed more space instead of you know really um affecting the house itself they used the what was once the back courtyard but had already been changed so much over the course of the 19th century by other owners. They built behind the mansion something almost as large as it, where uh, they had, I believe it was extra dormitory space um, and possibly their kitchens and bathrooms because we're one of those very, very rare house museums where uh, kitchen, bathroom, those were never added to the interior of the home. So the biggest change um, you know, if you come look at the house structurally, is closets. Victorian era owners wanted closets, um, so those got added in. But because Skyler left such detailed receipts behind, we've been able to restore the home to how it looked for them, right down to the color and patterns of the flock wallpaper. And because the descendants took such an interest in preserving what had been passed down to them by Philip and Catherine's children, we received so many donations of original furniture and objects. And, um, you know, one of the biggest questions I get on tour is what's original in this room? And I really enjoy that question because then we get to point out things that were here when the Schuylers lived here and talk a bit about, um, you know, 
what those objects meant then, how we know they're, uh, you know, something the Schuylers owned, and sometimes how they were restored to look like they did for the Schuylers. Interesting. And I, I'm also putting this together, maybe inappropriately, you can let me know. You mentioned that a lot of the research is geared towards what I consider groups largely forgotten by history, the enslaved people and the women. And it seems to me a house, in a lot of ways, was a woman's domain. Um, so perhaps a lot of that history is there in the objects, you know, in the um, furniture that was chosen or the, um, I don't know, textiles that were hung. Is that true? Do you have a sense of history, um, you know, of the women that were in that house from those kinds of objects? You know, what's really interesting is Philip and Catherine worked as a team. Um, and we often, we don't really see that in the 18th century. Um, but they, from, I will say her letters have not survived. We have one reference um, between two of their children in the 18 teens about what do we do with mom's letters? And then we, we don't know what they did with them. Um, so we only have Philip Schuyler's side of the conversation. But from that, we really get the sense that they worked as a team. Um, one of my favorite things is when this home was being built, Schuyler actually went to England. Um, he was settling accounts for the British. He had just served as a quartermaster for them during the Seven Years' War. And he was over there settling accounts, but also looking at other Georgian-style mansions like this one, looking at the furniture, the wallpaper, and making decisions like that while he was abroad, whereas Catherine is here watching the home being built. So in a way, that kind of flips the idea of what we might have of people in this time period on its head. Um, you know, they it wasn't necessarily Catherine making decisions about uh, the furniture, just from that kind of anecdote alone, it seems to be um, Julian, it seems like Skyler was making them while he was in England, where he would be seeing some of the most fashionable pieces of furniture, textiles there. So it makes sense that he would either bring those back home with him or bring um, samples back home with him. Uh, you know, everything fashionable in that time period came from abroad. So they would have been looking to that uh, as their fashion inspiration for their space. Oh, isn't that interesting? It does flip the traditional roles. <laughs> That's fascinating. <Right? laughs> yes. As with your research paper, it's all in knowing the details, not in having, you know, these preconceived ideas. Good for you. Our time has gone so fast. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Sure, you know, I, I always tell people that anyone can research history. So if you are interested in learning something, whether it's about your own family or a historical figure you're really interested in, I always recommend looking for primary sources. So whether that is something on Library of Congress, Founders Online, um, you know, census records, church records. Those are great places to turn. And if you don't know where to start, look at a biography and look at the 
things they cite in the biography and go from there. Because while I've got a lot of secondary sources or biographies that I really enjoy, I always look to the primary sources they're citing. And, um, you know, that way we can all learn for ourselves as well. I think that's just excellent advice. And it plays out so perfectly in your paper because you talk about Hamilton's early childhood in St. Croix, where most biographers have said, you know, this made him turn against slavery because it, he saw it firsthand. <laughs> you say, hmm, may have been just the opposite, may have made him think it was a normal part of life. But then you go and do the delving that shows the different ways he was involved in it. So thank you so much, Jessica. This has really been an education. Thank you for having me. And uh, I just We'll say one last thing to anyone listening. If you'd like to visit us here at Skylar Mansion, we are open for the season on May 18th. We're open Wednesday through Sunday with the first tour at 11, last tour at 4. And you can give us a phone call to make your reservation to take a tour. And I hope that we'll see some of your listeners there. Thank you so much for having me. Are these tours for free? So they're $5 for adults, $4 for seniors and students, and children 12 and under are free. Good to know. I am going to go. Thank you so much, Jessica. Awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you.